And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. The definition of a goal. Let's define what it is that we're trying to search for in Scripture. A goal is simply the, objection, the objective of a person or a group's ambition or effort. The destination of a journey or a point marking the end of a race. So what is it we're aiming for as the church? Synonyms for a goal include aim, target, design, intention, intent, plan, or purpose. The individual Christian asks, why am I still here? Sometimes you hear people after they're saved say, why has God left me here and not taken me home to be with the Lord? Well, as the church, we need to ask, why are we still here? Why do we gather as one body every Sunday? Why do we gather and worship the Lord, sometimes in small groups throughout our community? If the purpose of the church is in Scripture, then we should be able to find it. It seems strange that God would not leave us with a purpose. But if you go and look at other purpose statements at churches, maybe some of the largest churches in America, it's interesting what you'll find. Uh, someone did a, a online blog post of the 30 largest and most successful churches in America and listed the purpose statements. I just want to read a few to you, but I want you to think, first of all, in your mind, what is the purpose of the church? And then put your biblical filter on or your scripture goggles, as John Calvin said. And as I read these, be thinking in your mind, is that really, does it really fit the purpose of the church? So one church said, we are a movement, a church that unchurched people love to attend. Another church, and remember these are very large, thousands of members, uh, often seen as successful by the world. We are the voice and the hand that encourages people to change their lives with hope, comfort, and peace. Another said, we exist to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Another said, to reach the greater community and expand the kingdom of God. And then the rest of this list gets even grander in their purpose statement. They say, impact 100,000 people in the Phoenix area by 2020. To continue growing, impacting lives, and using technology and the arts to reach 100,000 people for Jesus Christ. Uh, this one's interesting. To create a radically inclusive just and loving community mobilized to alleviate suffering and break the cycles of poverty and marginalization. And then, one of my favorites, to build a great city is the purpose of one church. To build a great city renewed and redeemed by a gospel movement, by being a church for the city of Austin that labors to advance the gospel through the nations. Another says, it is the dream the dream of a place where the hurting and the depressed, the frustrated, the confused can find love, acceptance, help, hope, forgiveness, guidance, and encouragement. And then lastly, a church says, the church that I see is a church of influence. A church so large in size that the city and the nation cannot ignore it. A church growing so quickly that buildings struggle to contain the increase. And on top of that, there was a, a book written about 20 years ago called The Purpose Driven Church, which 
gave five points, five purposes of the church. Not so bad, but eventually it concluded that to build a successful church, you needed to accept business marketing principles to get the unchurched into the church. So do these statements accurately represent the purpose of the church? Is scripture going to back up what these large churches say we should be about? Well, to do that, we need to turn to the New Testament, particularly the book of Ephesians, to find that out. So if you would open to Ephesians chapter 3, and we need to see what the Apostle Paul has to say. Ephesians is the best book to answer this question for us because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this epistle to the Ephesians, who are mostly Gentiles. And he wanted them to know their place and the purpose of God's large plan. Their place and the purpose of the church. So we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in Ephesians 3. And what I want you to see tonight is that God has planned two cosmic goals for the church that all genuine believers in the church age must participate in. And I know my title says the cosmic goal, singular, and I'm sure some of you caught I just said two goals. But the more I reflected upon these passages, the more I realized they're closely related, but they're also distinct, the two goals. So when I gave Gail the sermon title at the time, I thought we could put them into one goal. So two cosmic goals for the church. Number one will be to reveal God's wisdom to angels. And number two, to glorify God for eternity. So let's look at number one, to reveal God's wisdom to angels. God the Father purposed to create the church in Christ Jesus to teach both good and evil angels something they previously had not known. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And Paul, I'm just going to jump right into the middle of his paragraph here, and then we'll go back and connect it. Uh, Verse 10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now notice that first phrase, so that. Anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, you need to be asking, what is that connected to? Because usually a phrase like so that or in order that is stating a purpose. Something happened so that this other thing could happen. Paul was made a minister, which we're going to see in verse 7, so that this purpose could occur. So look at verse 7. Again, jumping in sort of to the middle of this long sentence. Of which I was made a minister. So that's what, that's what Paul is stating. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Now he's going to give three purposes that God made him a minister. The first is found in verse 8. To me, the very least of all, this, the saints, this grace was given. First purpose, to preach to the Gentiles. And then in verse 9, second purpose, closely related, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. And then the third purpose listed here, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And really, verse 10 is the ultimate purpose. Paul's saying there were these other two purposes, and now I'm going to tell you a third one, which is even bigger than preaching and enlightening, because it all leads to this third purpose in verse 10. And what is that? Well, it's that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to angels. What is this manifold wisdom? Well, wisdom is the true nature 
of God's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles together into the church. So go with me back to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. And he's going to describe for us what this is. Why is there such a problem between Jew and Gentile? Starting in 2.11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that's most of us here tonight, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having it put to death, having put to death the enmity. And in 17 he quotes from the Old Testament, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and preach peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, speaking to Gentiles here. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You see, our ancestors were really a bunch of uncircumcised Philistines who hated the Jews and wanted to kill the Jews. And up until the time of Christ, every Gentile nation would have loved to conquer this very stubborn, what they saw as stubborn people who worshipped one God. And that's most of our ancestors here tonight. Had Paul not been given this ministry to go out to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel, where would we be? I'm not sure the gospel would even spread around the world. Of course, in God's plan, he had a different purpose in mind. Now, this manifold wisdom is that God would reveal the mystery. The mystery. Look at verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. See, this was a mystery. A mystery in, in the Greek world is something that's hidden and then it's been brought to light. So, the child at Christmas, they don't know what's in the box until they open it. It was a mystery, but now it's been made known. We don't often think that way in our uh, Western context. But to the Greek, something is a mystery, and then it's made known. Well, in the Old Testament, it was not clear how Gentiles and Jews would be brought together into one man. Because when God created Adam and Eve, one man... But then as time developed and he called Abraham out of the pagan nations and he made him a people, there became this enmity, this hatred, this hostility between Jew and Gentile. And no one in the Old Testament, as they read it, could have predicted exactly how God was going to reconcile that problem. How was he going to deal with this hatred, this oppressive Greek army who wanted to kill the Jews or oppressive Roman force which eventually did crush Israel? How exactly was God going to reconcile and make peace between 
Jew and Gentile. This concept was a mystery. Paul speaks of a mystery many times in his letters. 1 Corinthians 2.7, he clearly says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And he says it is now made known in verse 10. This wisdom, though, it's manifold, which in Greek is a very rare word. This English word manifold, it's only used one time in the Bible, in the Greek Bible. And it's only used about two other times in other Greek sources. So guys have to do a lot of study to try and figure out what it means. But eventually, we've come to find out that it means various colors or a diversity. God's wisdom is so magnificent, so beautiful, that there are varying colors. It's like the different facets of a diamond. This reminds me of a rainbow that I saw the other day out out back of our house. Uh, We never see or hear thunderstorms in Southern California. It's weird going a whole year without seeing lightning or hearing thunderstorms. And we just get a few showers. So we got home, and a couple of days later, there's big storms rolling across. And we get the kids outside, and we're showing them, you know, some of the little ones. I don't think they've ever heard thunder or seen lightning. And we could see a rainbow in the sky. It was just beautiful. And we were looking at the different colors and trying to teach the kids, look at all the different colors that God has made in this rainbow. And then we saw a second rainbow above it, two full rainbows in the sky. I hear it's a very rare thing to even see that. And I was studying this passage that day, and I thought, that is a great picture of God's rich diversity, God's rich wisdom, and putting together the church exactly the way he has done it. But who did he make this wisdom known to? Well, we would think it's he made it known to mankind. God gave the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations, right? And the Bible does say that. But this is a very interesting passage. I don't know if you've actually considered. I haven't until um, I looked at this passage. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who is that? That's the angels. Not earthly rulers. Used to, when I was first a Christian, I would see that term, right? Rulers and authorities. Oh, that's the kings. That's the, the rulers that want to kill Christians. But these are in the heavenly places. Speaks of angels. Different orders of angels. The angels... Think about it. They were there when God created everything. It says in Job 38 that the angels shouted when the stars first sang. When the stars were created, the angels were there with God and they saw everything that he made. They saw man, the pinnacle of God's creation. But the Bible doesn't tell us that this revealed God's manifold wisdom. I mean, imagine how much humans spend time and money studying the stars and how amazed that we are. And God's manifold wisdom was through the church. People don't study the church as much as they study the stars, right? We put big million-dollar, billion-dollar telescopes in the sky, and we look at the stars. And the angels were there when God made them. But that did not reveal God's manifold wisdom. Abraham coming out of the pagan nations to becoming the nation of Israel. God taking Israel out of slavery, feeding a million people in the desert. Parting the Red Sea. Ten plagues on Egypt. Those did not reveal to angels the manifold wisdom of God. Do you realize that angels spent thousands of years not knowing exactly how the church would be put together? I don't even know if they knew of the church as a concept. But who taught them that? 
How did they learn of this mystery? They learned through us, through the church, through you and I coming together into one body, both Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ, the universal church. So going all the way back to the first believers up until now, all the way to the end of the church age, that makes up the church. We have actually taught angels. Not actively, right? We're the intermediate age, and it's through the church. So God actually is teaching them His manifold wisdom through what they see here displayed. And so what this tells us is that God's wisdom is more beautiful, not only than we can imagine, but even His holy angels who are there in heaven with Him, seeing everything. R. Kent Hughes, uh, one of my favorite commentators and pastors uh, to read, he he stated, the history of the Christian church is the graduate school for angels. Another commentator, Clint Arnold, said, no person or supernatural power could have figured out how God would unfold his plan. But now that it has been revealed and set in motion, one can only stand back and marvel at its extraordinary design. Do you marvel at the extraordinary design that God has put in the church? That different races and colors and cultures of people could come together under one body? That Jew and Gentile who hated each other can now be in Christ and in one body together? This should bring us to more unity in our body here at Curvo Bible. This should uh, cause us to push away factions and complaints and Murmurings against leadership because all that does is divide the church body. And the angels are actually watching. Paul says in Corinthians that the in 1 Corinthians eleven that the angels are watching, so the women ought to have a symbol of authority on their head, which indicates that the angels are watching us as we worship. And they are learning. I think they're still even though this says made known in the past, I think because Paul's saying the church, that they're still wondering and amazing an amazement at this idea of the church coming together. And even the fallen angels have learned something from this manifold wisdom. We we often think all the holy angels, they've learned and they can glorify God and they can serve the church. What do evil angels learn? Well, first of all, they cannot hinder the progress of the gospel or the progress of God's church. Satan would love nothing than that animosity, that hatred, that hostility between Jew and Gentile to continue Think about it. What does Satan love? Death, destruction, trying to undo God's creation, trying to thwart God's purposes. And when Christ came and he died on the cross and the church was established, evil angels knew. They probably knew something beforehand, right? But they knew for certain that in the church that was going to be gone. That in Christ, that hatred, that animosity would be gone forever. The second thing that evil angels learn is that they are to be subject to Christ. All things will be subject to Christ. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's already mentioned this. Ephesians 1.10. With a view uh, to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, that's where the angels are, things in the heavens, and things on earth. So all things will be summed up in Him. And look also at verse 20 of chapter 1, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. 
Again, an indication that Christ is going to be set up over all angelic powers. And there are other places in Scripture like Colossians and even Hebrews that speak much of the angels. How sometimes even uh, Christians who are attempting to put them up too high and almost worship them. And Paul has to correct them in that. So the first point here that I want you to get tonight is that God created the church to reveal something new to angels. To reveal his wisdom about this mystery. And they stood back in amazement and saw it for the first time. And this ought to drive us to more and greater unity, even with our body here. Now the second point tonight is that God created the church to glorify himself for eternity. God the Father purposed to create in Christ Jesus to glorify himself forever. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. We'll start in verse 20. 20 and 21 are, are what's called a doxology. Literally a, a word of glory or a word of praise. So Paul is finishing out this section here in chapter 3 with just a bursting forth of praise to God for what he's done in the church. So starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now I want you to notice at the very beginning of verse 21, to Him be the glory. We often hear this word glory in the Bible and we think we understand what it means. We just often pass by it. But glory is used two different ways in the Bible. One is the intrinsic glory of who God is. His divine perfection. His divine attributes. It's a part of who He is. And we can't add to that glory. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Also in Isaiah 42. I will not give my glory to another. This intrinsic glory that God has and has always had. We cannot add to. So that's not what Paul is speaking of here in verse 21. What he's speaking of is a second type, which is called God's ascribed glory. This is when we praise God, we worship Him. We ascribe greater glory through our praise and worship to Him. It's what He designed all mankind to do, but they don't do it, Romans 1. But especially in the church, we should glorify Him. Psalm 29.1 says it very straight. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then Romans 11:36, many of our favorite verses. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. That's speaking of God's ascribed glory, which Paul is speaking of here in verse 21. Now, the glory offered is to be presented in the church and in Christ Jesus. And that's a very interesting phrase right there because there's a lot of doxologies in the New Testament, mostly by Paul. The church is never mentioned in any of them. He mentions Christ. He mentions the Father. He mentions all the great and wonderful things that God has done. But this is the only case where the church is mentioned in a doxology. And notice it comes before Christ Jesus. Now in English, that's not a real big deal. But in Greek, whatever comes first in a series is of primary importance. The author is putting focus right there on the very first thing in the series. In English, often that's the very last thing in a series of 
of events or items. So this was such a big deal to early church scribes as they copied the scriptures in Greek. They thought there must have been a mistake in the earlier copyists. And so they would make a little change. They said, well, the guy before me who recorded this in my grandfather's generation, he must have messed up because it doesn't make sense. So they would erase it and put another word in there like by or through. And that would make more sense to them. But the oldest manuscripts and the best ones show us that this truly is in the church and in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean? Well, it simply means that the church is the body of Christ. The glory is in Christ's body and in the head. They go together. We can't separate them. And Paul's been talking about the church in chapter 3. So it only makes sense that he starts off saying the glory is in the church, which is Christ's body, and in the head, which is what he's always saying in his doxologies, to, the, to Christ be the glory and towards the Father. And he also says, it's to all generations forever and ever. We will ascribe glory to God forever as the church. It will be an endless praise. In the millennial kingdom, there will be a distinction between the church and the kingdom of Israel. And we will be part of that kingdom, but we will also still ascribe glory to God as the church. Otherwise, why does Paul say, to God be the glory in the church forever and ever? And I, I believe even in the eternal state, this is a hint that in the eternal state after the millennial kingdom, there's still some distinction between the church and Israel because, again, Paul says, in the church forever and ever. Amen. So this leaves us with a big question. How exactly do we as Curvo Bible accomplish this purpose that we can't actively participate in? How do we ascribe more glory to God? And I've listed five different ways that we can do this. Now, two of the five will be covered in separate sermons in this series, so I won't spend a lot of time on them. But you might want to, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down along with the verses and to go back and meditate on them later and think about what is my role in these five ways that I can help glorify God in the church? What part do I play in these five things? How can I do a better job of that? How has God gifted me to glorify Him in the church? So the first one is by building itself up in the faith. The church glorifies God by building itself up in the faith. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 16. Paul is speaking here of equipping the saints, and he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mean, that's a three-part sermon series right there on that passage. And, you know, we come together to build each other up in the faith. And that's done through all the, the other four things that I'm going to list for you. But Paul clearly uses a lot of terminology about growing and being built up and being matured and having a strong foundation. And this glorifies God. 
The second way that we can glorify God as the church is by instruction and teaching of the word. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Later in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, he speaks of the word and being taught all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now we have a, a verse here at KBC on the very front of our bulletin that summarizes my first two points I just mentioned on how we glorify God in the church. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and in teaching every man with all wisdom. So that's instruction of the word. So that, and what does so that mean? It's a purpose, right? That's the purpose of doing those things. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Every man complete, every man mature, every man built up in the faith. Man and woman and a child as well if they're saved. That's a good verse to have on the front of our bulletin. Number three, the third way we can build each other up. I'm sorry, the third way that we can glorify God in the church is by fellowship. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we see a great pattern in the early church of exactly what they were doing. As soon as Pentecost had occurred and they're meeting regularly, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Luke writes, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then skip down to verses 46 and 47. Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Fellowship, gathering together, being one body. And this isn't necessarily what we do over in the fellowship hall, although that is fellowship, or in the Family Life Center, although what we do there is fellowship. But this also includes what we do in our homes. As we have fellow members of the church and fellow believers over, and we fellowship with them, and we encourage them, and we do some of these other things that I've mentioned, like build each other up in the faith, or instruct them in the Word. It's gathering together for prayer, Bible studies, meals, at your home, at work, in men's ministry events, in women's ministry events. The reason that we have those things in our church is for more fellowship, as well as more instruction of the word and building up in the faith. Now these last two items, to glorify God in the church, as I said, they will have separate uh, sermons later on. Uh, but number four is, by keeping the ordinances, we glorify God. When you are baptized, when you go down into the water, symbolizing death with Christ, and you come up, symbolizing resurrection with Christ, that glorifies God. So, when somebody comes to me and says, should I be baptized now or not? The question is, of course, are you a believer? And then, the first command is to be baptized. It glorifies God to do that. It glorifies God to take the Lord's Supper. Right? What did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Remembering Him glorifies Him. Showing the Lord's Supper as a symbol 
as visitors come, as unbelievers see us take it. I mean, when, when it's passed in front of our uh, pew, my children will often ask, what is it? And of course, they're trying to maybe sometimes grab some, and I have to teach them, this is for believers. And I show them, you know, the, the blood and the body of Christ. And so that glorifies God. The fifth one is by advancing and communicating the gospel to the entire world. The Great Commission. Matthew 28.19, Acts 1.8, and Acts 2.42, if you'd like to look those up. So five ways that the New Testament teaches we can glorify God in the church. The question is, are you participating in any of those five? You should be if you're in the church, right? Each of us should be involved in all five of them as one body. But our gifting is often in one of those five. So if you wrote those down, I just uh, would ask that you meditate on those and consider which of those you can contribute to in the church. So now that we've looked at what the Bible has to say about the purpose of the church, how does KBC measure up? Right? I mean, it's, it's only fair that we look at our own church. So I went on the website and pulled up the mission statement. Well, let me read that to you. And this was written many years ago. I'm not sure how long ago it was written, but God made us and saved us for his own glory and good pleasure, not for us to glory in ourselves. We exist to boast in God because his perfect character and awesome acts, especially his work of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We seek to show others that God is worthy of our boasting and obedience by consistently pursuing three main activities as a church. That together glorify God. They are exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in worship, edifying or building up one another in the faith, evangelizing the lost. I give them a, a passing test, right? I give us a passing test because three of the five that I listed, and I'm sure all the elders would agree that the ordinances and baptism as well glorify God the Father. And how many times did they mention glory? In that first paragraph. Three times. To glorify God. Not ourselves. To glorify God. Not ourselves. So what we've seen here tonight. Is that the two cosmic goals. Teach us. That God created the church. For two very grand purposes. Two ultimate goals. He did it to reveal. His manifold wisdom to angels. To unite both Jew and Gentile. And. He did it to glorify himself. In the church forever and ever. This brought the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon to say, Not for yourself, O church, do you exist any more than Christ existed for himself. So I say, let us worship and praise God our Father for doing such a wonderful thing. If the angels can do it, if the angels can glorify God and honor him because of what's been revealed, how much more us, the actual ones that God has saved, he does not give help to angels, it says in Hebrews 2. But he does to the seed of Abraham. So let us praise him, let us glorify his name, and let us remember the two cosmic goals of the church that he brought into history at the exact appropriate time. Let us pray for that now. Lord, let your glory go forth. Let it go forth from this place. And let us always remember, Lord, that our purpose here 
is not to glorify ourselves. It's not to boast in our own works. Even within the church, Lord, we are not to boast in ourselves. But in what you have done in us, through us, for us. And let us live our lives in the Spirit as redeemed people saved by Christ. And glorify your name forever and ever. And it's just in the name of your matchless Son we pray. Amen.